Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponized, and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it, and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, the author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name's Ian Dunt. I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal and I'm a columnist at the Iron Newspaper. In this episode, we will be talking about the ever-changing concept of centrism. Ian, why now? I don't know. I'm quite, I'm quite wary about what's happening here. I'm quite, I, I don't know. After spending a couple of weeks reading this stuff, I was sort of thinking, like, this is a mad story. I mean, someone, someone must have told this story somewhere, but it, uh, it's hard to find. We can find a book that tells you the story of centrism. Yeah, incredible, right? And yeah. then you look, at, even if you look at Wikipedia, you look on Encyclopedia Britannica, it's oh, pretty yeah. useless. Like, and yet it's a word that you hear. I mean, if, if you're on politics Twitter in the UK, and oh. I can only presume in the US, and, and I presume in Europe as well, you will hear that word at least once a day, usually as a term of abuse, but not always. You, will, you know, pretty much every, every time you hear something about the Labour leader, someone in some capacity will use the word centrism. And the thing is, after this whole story, and this might not be the best start to a podcast, but we'll see how it shuffles out. I'm not sure the story has any meaning. Like, ultimately, when it came down to it, and I got to the end and I was thinking, can I say what this thing is? And I'm not, I can pick up some ideas for what it might be, but I'm not sure I can answer that question right now. Ah, interesting. Because I think I can. Huh. But the problem is, is that the centre keeps moving. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is nope. always the problem it's that true. they've had. So, you know, because where the extremes of left and right are, a particular place at a particular time, defines where the centre is and therefore, you know, what it means to be a centrist. And so then you have to kind of look into and ask, are there these fundamental qualities to centrism? Is it a philosophy? Or is it like an absence mm-hmm. of a philosophy? Is it an ideology or uh, a denial of, you know, rejection of ideology? At their best, I think what you can salvage from it, and I do think it's a salvage operation, is this idea of rejecting tribalism and seeking consensus, which are fine, fine values to have. But I have to say, when I was looking at it, I was thinking all the things that I want to give to it on a positive basically have already been done by liberalism. And I know that sounds like a parody of myself for the kind of thing I say, but ultimately you're like, this is just stuff that's in John Stuart Mill, that's in Isaiah Berlin, that's part of the liberal sort of principle. And I don't see what's being added to it here. Then there's other aspects of it. For instance, the fact that it is a completely passive dictated by the terms of debate around it, which seems to me to be quite a negative thing for anything to hold. So, so I came away, I was actually expecting to come out of us thinking more positively about centrism. And I came away from it thinking, I don't know if it, if it's, up to much if there's any point in us even using this word. Ah. Well, the Oxford English Dictionary uh, is comically unhelpful on this front. (laughs) Centrism, open brackets, the policy of adopting, close brackets, a middle position between extreme views. Thank you so much. You could have worked out yourself. First citation is from 1935, a plea for some sort of philosophical centrism that should preserve the British tradition. Don't know what that means. And as for centrist, we get mainly a member of the Centre Party in France which is then oh. transferred to other contexts. And the first citation outside France is, is actually 1923. So we're looking here in the 20s and 30s, but it doesn't really take off as a word until much later. Um, a lot of the, some of the, the texts that we'll be talking about here, they don't use the word centrism. Before we get to the early bit, I just want to say, like one of the, one of the books that's interesting is uh, John Avalon's Independent Nation from 2004, when it says self-identified moderates and independents are actually in the majority in in polls. And he opens with a poem which we'll be coming back to a lot, which is uh, The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats. Uh, you'll, you'll know it. Uh, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, and then later, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. The centrists love this poem. Um, Literally just because it's got the word centre in it. And Avalon starts with loads of definitions, which I quite like. Um, he goes, centrists cut an independent path between the extremes. He says it's the most effective means for achieving the classic mission of politics, the peaceful reconciliation of competing interests. Idealism without realism is impotent. Realism without idealism is empty. By effectively balancing idealism and realism, centrism offers both a principled vision of governing and a successful strategy for winning elections. Bish bosh. He does make it seem really easy 
doesn't he? Like, it's just like, well, this is obviously the best way to do politics. Before we start, I, I just want to mention some of the names that came up as I was doing reading a sort of centrist canon, mm-hmm. because they're pretty diverse. So in America, you get John Adams, Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. In the UK, David Lloyd George, William Beveridge, John Stuart Mill, and John Maynard Keynes. Right. Does that make sense? Is that too diffuse? Does that just make you think, hang on, is this liberalism with a hat on it? A, yes, it's, it's part of that concern. If it's to mean more than just happening to find yourself in the middle of two polarised positions, then it should apply to all sorts of areas. Now, the discussion that of here mostly is about economics. It's primarily an economic discussion because that's how, primarily how politics has operated for mm. the last few hundred years. Mm. But you would have thought then... That if you want it to be meaningful, you need to push it into other areas. And then so suddenly you're asking yourself questions like, well, what was it to be a centrist during segregation? You know, does that mean that you have right. to accept a certain amount of it? Because that seems to me to be morally abysmal. And if, if that is the case, then really it quickly finds itself stuck into some pretty bleak places. I don't think that is the case. I don't think mm-hmm. many people that like... That but it's not centrist. simply take any position, look at the extremes and draw, you know, get my sort of compass out and find the middle. Right. But this is it. But the thing is, if you were to say to a centrist then, okay, so uh, what's your position on segregation? You know, if you're around uh, 100 years ago or whatever. And they say, well, obviously that's completely wrong. They're not. Okay. So it's not all about the centre. You know, there are certain values yeah, that yeah. you must hold that are, you know, trans, that trans, even if no one else holds them, they're still the right value to have. And, and, blah, blah, blah. and in that case, it seems to me that the word centrism just doesn't seem applicable to that kind of political thought. Ian, uh, like I said, the word centrism doesn't appear until the you know, 20s, 30s. But can you take us back to where the language, why we talk about the left, the right and the centre? This originates with uh, the French Revolution. I think in most people's heads, you know, when you have the French Revolution of 1789, fall of the Bastille and they sort of think, oh, and then the king goes. And in actual fact, that's not the case. I mean, the king goes on trial and is executed in January 1793. So you've got this period where the revolutionary government's kind of in charge. It's not really a government. It's more of a parliament in the form of the National Assembly. And the king's still around. And there's this split between those who who still support, you know, the, the king quite firmly, who want him to maintain a veto power. And more broadly than that, a split on religion. France is completely bankrupt. That's one of the reasons that um, the revolution happens. And there's this push among supporters of the revolution to confiscate church lands, and then to put out these kind of bonds, these IOUs on the basis of the church land that they haven't yet sold as an item of currency. They're called the assignats. You also have this sort of push for a civil constitution for the clergy, basically for sort of churchmen to sign up to the revolution and to take an oath to say that they are. And lots of priests don't do that. They're called refractory priests and they are persecuted. They're sometimes killed. They're certainly harangued. They're mocked. So at the same time, and this is going to become quite important later on, you get this attack on property rights in the form of confiscation of church lands and this attack on individual rights. That incenses conservative opinion and they start going over to the right of the assembly, to the right of the chair. And those supporters of the revolution on the left of the chair. So Baron de Gouville says, we began to recognise each other. Those who were loyal to religion and the king took up positions to the right of the chair so as to avoid the shouts, oaths and indecencies that enjoyed free reign in the opposing camp. The people on the right, you would find sort of people like the Fouillants, um, who were very pro, very Catholic, very conservative, very royalist. On the left, you'd find the Montagnards, people like Maximilien Robespierre, author of the Terror, George Danton, Jean-Paul uh, Marat, who was a proponent of massacres. But there were people in the middle, and they were called the Girondines. Uh, so they were, they are essentially the first centrists. There is a myth that I think is partly created by John Stuart Mill himself about the Girondines as these sort of real kind of reasonable, they're for the revolution, but they're against the terror, they're against the expansion of the revolution to Europe through war. You know, mm-hmm. so there's someone that those who are broadly supportive of the revolution, but didn't like the whole terror bit where everyone got guillotined, could sort of latch all of their aspirations onto yeah. afterwards. And John Tuttle was very specific about that later on. I mean, the Girondines, for what it's worth, they were eventually all killed and a sort of crowd goes up in this very tumultuous period to the National Assembly and bars them from leaving and then demands their arrest. So we're talking about really sort of midpoint 1794. I mean, France is pretty much a completely controlled economy on all kinds of goods. And you get the terror, just the endless guillotine um, of sort of opponents of the regime. 
of those opponents, I mean, the Girondins are some of the first people that are killed. Marie Antoinette goes first, I mean, obviously, but really kind of pretty much immediately straight after you get the Girondins. I think it takes 36 minutes to guillotine 22 of them. Centrism does not exist as a word. We would be essentially talking about John Stuart Mill's liberalism, like in the 19th century. There's, I think there's two aspects to this. The first one, you sort of have taken into account his childhood, right? So John Stuart Mill raised by James Mill and Jeremy Bentham to be the perfect utilitarian man and a sort of prolonged kind of form of child abuse, really, just turned into this perfect, remorseless logic machine. He has a, a complete emotional collapse when he's just out of his teenage years and then puts himself together using poetry, which is despised by the utilitarians. From that point, he has this view on half-truth, which is that, you know, we're psychologically disposed to just to dogma, to tribalism, to just constantly ingesting the information that we want to hear. And we don't really think for ourselves. We think according to convention. And therefore, you've got to seek the half-truth in someone else's view that you can try and bring together. And I think right. that is crucial for what happens next. The second part is those attacks on property and individual rights in the French Revolution pump this sense of righteousness into right-wingers, uh, either in politics or in philosophy, especially in the UK. Um, they're a quarter of the time laissez-faire, basically means let the market decide, let, get the state out of the market, no redistribution, no regulation. In our time, we call them neoliberals. We also call them libertarians. For our Right. One day we're probably going to do an episode on this stuff. But yeah. for the time being, I mean, basically these three words are essentially interchangeable in this context. Let the market decide, state gets out of the way. Now, John Stuart Mill, you could see him as a successor to the Girondists in, in that capacity because he's the first one to go. This is when communism is rising up. So we're talking about 1848, roughly. You've got communism on the one hand, which he associates with Robespierre, the Montanards, that sort of far left of, of the side of the chair. And then you've got laissez-faire on, on the other hand. Right. And he just goes, look, you have to go in the middle. The market works for a lot of things, but you need the state to come in in certain moments. He says, in the particular circumstances of a given age or nation, there is scarcely anything really important to the general interest, which it may not be desirable or even necessary that the government should take upon itself. So moving on to the actual word centrism and what it what it really meant was Marxist centrism. Trotsky tells you, publishes two articles on, on Marxist centrism, and he's attacking socialists who staked out a position between revolution and reformism. And these are groups like the Independent Labour Party in the UK and the POOM in Spain, both of whom were groups uh, George Orwell was associated huh. with. And to anyone but a communist, obviously, they, they're firmly on the left. But what's funny is that many of his criticisms are still levelled at centrists today. So if we if we sort of lift them out of this particular context, where he's basically talking about socialists who aren't revolutionary enough, hmm. he calls uh, a centrist parasitic, opportunistic, <laughs> vague, <laughs> lacking in vision, uninterested in theory, ideologically empty and harder on the left than they are on the right. Hmm. He says centrism, in view of its organic indefiniteness, is difficult to define precisely being characterised much more by what it lacks than by what it holds. He also says centrism dislikes being called centrism, <laughs> which I think is uh, which I think is, uh, is is often very fair. So do you? So he is basically putting that negative definition. It's defined by by what it isn't. It's defined by sort of an absence of dogma. And do you think this is a sort of perpetual problem for centrists that they you know that they really do have to find something to kind of to sort of fill that absence with. Otherwise, they just sound like, and again, it always sounds very reasonable. Reasonable is the thing, isn't it? Mm. It's just like, well, I don't, I don't want to go that far, but I don't want to go that far either. Is this something that kind of like is just a perpetual problem that he identifies there? I mean, I, know, I don't want to skip forward to, to, you know, too much here, but I mean, I suppose we saw that most recently with like Change UK and they were, they were the perfect example of kind of negative centrism. We're like, we're neither that nor that. Mm. What, what are, exactly you? are you? Don't know. TBC. Yeah. Isn't there like a gap between the sort of the public and political obsessives? In the political obsessive, whatever you take a top size of 10% of the population or whatever, reads a newspaper every day, calls themselves an ism, you know, socialist, conservative, whatever, tend to have very strong tribal views on what they're dealing with. Yeah. And, the, and the majority of the public, usually when you look at polling, they like to say, I'm sort of in the center, I'm, I don't really associate with anyone, whatever. And so it's a word that probably plays very well with the majority of the public, but is 
always detested by people who are yeah. really interested in politics. It's just like, pick a side. Because it's, yeah, because it's, you're not passionate enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that you've got these writers in the 30s and 40s. We're moving beyond Marxist centrism now. Um, and we're talking about people where they saw the center as like brutal, unrestrained capitalism over there and literal communism. Russian communism over there. So, like, what are you going to do? So one of these people is Harold Macmillan, Mm -hmm. future uh, Tory prime minister. In 1938, writes a book called The Middle Way. And his whole argument is about what you have to do to safeguard democracy and avert revolution and dictatorship. So he's looking at Stalin and Hitler. He definitely doesn't like socialism and nationalisation, but he's really keen on a minimum wage and a national nutrition board, which would make sure that everybody is, uh, you know, everybody is eating properly. And he says, freedom and poverty cannot live together. It is only insofar as poverty is abolished that freedom is increased. The secure bulwark against reaction or revolution is an economic system that can satisfy the moderate needs of men for material welfare and security, while preserving at the same time the intellectual, social and political liberty essential to human progress in a wider field. And so he's really trying to sort of balance out. But he's basically suggesting a form of planned capitalism. Mm-hmm. He thinks that the, the, the Conservative Party must be the middle way. It must be the party that brings people that brings people together. Even though obviously the kind of the laissez-faire capitalists that he's attacking were presumably Tory voters. Mm. Um, so he's sort of you have to understand the context of kind of like mid-century centrist thinking as like, if you don't get this right, it's mayhem. Like, there is no limit to how bad things can get. Mm. So then in America, um, you've got Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. I'm sure he didn't pronounce his surname like that. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Well, we're not pronouncing anything right today. So, uh, History professor at Harvard, later works for Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic presidential candidate, and John F. Kennedy. And in April 1948, he writes an essay in the New York Times called Not Left, Not Right, But a Vital Centre. And he actually said, look, it doesn't make sense to talk about a united left and a united right in an age of communism and fascism. He says, if we will understand that the non-communist left, who he loved, and the non-fascist right share a common faith in free political society, a faith that the differences between them over economic issues can be best worked out by discussion and debate under law, we might even stop talking of left and right as if nothing lay in between. So it's a real argument there for like for what he calls the vital centre. And he says, hope for the future lies in the centre. Neither fascism nor communism can win so long as there remains a democratic middle way, which unites hopes of freedom and of economic abundance. And I think you really see echoes of this uh, later on. And he turns this into a book, this essay expands it into a book called The Vital Centre, which is a phrase that Bill Clinton ends up using. And what's interesting is it is nothing like Trotsky's caricature of sort of weakness and emptiness and indecision. And he keeps using the words radical and new, new radicalism, new freedom, which I think is sort of, you know, some people will will think seems quite familiar. Mm. And it's interesting that there is a sort of, it's a muscular, radical centrism, but still in the writing. And I think this is the problem perhaps with centrist prose. Is it's always over there, over here, but in the middle. So it says, in one direction lies the tyranny of the irresponsible bureaucracy. In the other, the tyranny of the irresponsible plutocracy. Somewhere between the abyss and the jungle, the new radicalism will work out a sensible economic policy. Yeah, I can't. I, I, I suppose I just come back to my thing of just saying I don't, I don't see what's being said there that isn't just said by just you know, lovers of, of freedom. And within that context, you say, look, we're going to disagree on resource allocation. You know, we're going to disagree on things like privatization, sure. Okay, but but we all have, you know, as, as almost like a sort of membership to participate in that debate, you reject totalitarianism on left and right, because if it were allowed to flourish, it would stop us from being able to have this debate in the first place. So I, it sort of feels to me like it, it's part of that post-war story of, holy shit, we just almost made ourselves extinct. Yeah, but that's why it's different, right? Because that's why it's different from sort of like pre-war or 19th century liberalism. Because like, okay, well, that didn't work. It allowed these countries to slide into 
dictatorship. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, that's the big change there. That might be a good point for me to talk about Keynes, because I think he would be in that tradition, certainly. He is a continuation of that John Stuart Mill idea of like, look, it cannot be just the market. We saw what happened with the Great Depression. We saw how that leads to the rise of Nazism. How come that as soon as governments needed to start preparing for war and pushing all that military spending, suddenly we could find work again? Why can't we do for peace what we did for war? Why can't we do that to sort of build hospitals, build schools, build roads? He put it, his quote was, we're bought to my heresy. I bring in the state. I abandon laissez-faire. Again, the rejection of the simplicity of communism on the one hand and the simplicity of the free market on the other. He essentially thought that recessions were a a failure of aggregate demand. And that the state could provide that demand. You give people jobs, they spend more. Someone sets up a sandwich shop to serve the guy building the road and they've got more money to spend and you can start stimulating the economy. Is that where the Wild Bean Cafe started? (laughs) That's exactly exactly how that that (laughs) occurred. Is that once he does it, it's quite a limited view, really. It's just, it's just a way to fix recessions. And after the recession's fixed, you go back to normal laissez-faire. But that's not how it works. Once it's accepted politically, you have this push for nationalization. You have this push for regulation of corporations, especially of, of banking. Crucially, the Glass-Steagall Act in the, in the US starts to bring banks under control to prevent the kind of things that happened in the Great Depression. I mean, by the time you get to 1965, right, Keynes is Times Magazine's Man of the Year. And I, think, I honestly haven't read any better description of what he accomplished for sort of politics and economics than than what Times puts there. They say, today, some 20 years after his death, his theories are a prime influence on the world's free economies. The modern capitalist economy does not work automatically at top efficiency, but can be raised to that level by the intervention and influence of the government. So to me, Keynes seems firmly in that tradition of we can't do this again. You know, it, it's really Keynesianism because he, he, mm. he didn't survive long after the end of the war. And it is a centre position between the competing demands of communism and let's say yeah, fair. Yeah. It is. It's just that I don't think that what is... I, I, I feel like this other thing is going to keep on coming back to me just, just spluttering around when I'm like, why does this make me so uncomfortable? And it could be, I have, to, I have to put a red flag here because it, I have to be, it could be because I am an ideologue. You know, I am an ideologue for opposition. I am for, for liberalism, which I think is objectively true and morally true in an objective manner. And so it's possible that I just feel threatened by what seems to me like a kind of relativism that is implicit in the term centrism. Um, but it's not interesting by virtue of the fact that it's in the center. It's interesting by virtue of the fact that it is approached on a case by case basis of an empirical basis of going, right. what's working here? What's working here? What isn't working? Let's follow that. Yes, because I've noticed that I want to mention this, the sort of fetishization of, of sort of pragmatism, realism, being sensible. Mm. And that is still mm. Mm. sort of like the word sensible, for example, <laughs> the angers people on sort of <laughs> left wing Twitter, you know, because there is a certain there can be a certain smugness to it. But um, I want to quote this bit from Schlesinger, which just sounds like it's got new Labour vibes here. (laughs) It's a liberalism which purports to shape a real world must first accept the limitations and possibilities of that world. It must reconcile itself to the tedious study of detail, less gratifying perhaps than the emotional orgasm of passing resolutions (laughs) against Franco, Monopoly or Sin, but probably more (laughs) likely to bring about actual results. That is good coffee. That is good. I mean, (laughs) and I do think that that absolute irritation with the kind of the sort of performative moral superiority of the left yeah. is like, is such a kind of common thread mm-hmm. in, in, in centrism. So by the Victorian period, still not mentioning centrism, but you have developed these two kind of key ideas. I think mean, one of them is that you should sort of avoid tribalism and seek these little scraps of truth on the other side. And the other is that the great question of politics, which is the state or the market, doesn't have one solution on either side. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Origin Story. We'd love making it, but hacking our way through the underworld of politics and history takes a lot of work if you want to do it properly. You can help us keep going and suggest topics we should tackle in the next series of the podcast by supporting Origin Story on the crowdfunding site Patreon. Back Origin Story for as little as £5 a month and you'll be helping Dorian and me to dig even deeper into our research, discover more strange and illuminating moments from the hidden history of politics and culture and generally drive ourselves to distraction on your behalf. 
You'll also get special benefits, including an extra episode every month where we answer your questions, an exclusive origin story mugs and t-shirts featuring inspiring and or possibly terrifying quotes from our research. Search Patreon Origin Story Podcast now to find out more or click the link in the show notes. So then we're getting to, like you said, we're getting to the 1970s and this kind of unbelievable sense of crisis and failure. Here is an extract from Tony Benn's diary in October 1976 mm-hmm. about a lunch with William Rees Mogg. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, just, it just, just you even saying that just makes me feel like nothing ever it changes. changes. We're just trapped so, in this loop. William Rees Mogg, uh, who we first met in the 1940s uh, and remembered as a pompous young man with a gold watch and a rather fancy waistcoat. <laughs> oh which, my God, what's going on? It's the same person. <laughs> um, So anyway, Ben writes, we talked about the collapse of Keynesianism, the collapse of the beverage idea, and when the consensus died. Was it during the Wilson or the Heath government? In fact, we both agreed that the centre had collapsed under us and that there was now a pretty basic choice to be made. Obviously, Ben and Rees-Mogg thought (laughs) different choices would be made, and Mm. Rees-Mogg turned out um, to be correct. And the the sort of who's sticking up for the centre at this point? It's um, Roy Jenkins, whose memoir is helpfully mm-hmm. titled A Life at the Centre. Right. Yes. <laughs> so not not mucking about. And he actually thought that neither party could fix the nation's problems. And he thought the whole problem was that this swinging between the two, these two extremes. Not that you would say particularly that Heath and Wilson mm. were that extreme. Um, but during the 1975 referendum on joining the uh, European community, the Labour left and the Tory right campaigned for no. Um, but the mainstream of both parties went for yes. And because of so much collaboration, particularly he was with Willie Whitelaw and the Tories, this led Jenkins to explore possibility of a grand coalition between the Labour right and the Tory left. Hmm. Uh, and he writes in the memoir, I look back on 1975 as a great missed opportunity for Heath and Willie Whitelaw and a whole regiment of discarded conservative wets, as much as for Shirley Williams one of his sort of Labour colleagues, and David Steele, the Liberal leader, and me. They and we could have had much more the sort of government we broadly wanted than anything which was in office in the 1980s, and the country would, in my view, have greatly benefited. Mm. Which is sort of an interesting idea. Like, that was one of the ideas. I mean, some people were thinking military coup. Mm. And Roy Jenkins is like, maybe we could just unite, like, the moderates in the Tories and the Labour have this sort of grand coalition. I mean, that idea breaks my heart. It's the most heartbreaking counterfactual of British political history. It's sort of fascinating. Like, would that? I mean, that is none more centrist. <laughs> I mean, come on now. <laughs> so anyway, this doesn't happen. Jenkins doesn't succeed Harold Wilson in 76, goes off to Brussels for three years to be president of the European Commission. Um, 1979, he makes this Dimbleby lecture uh, it's a very famous sort of speech, which is an argument for the radical centre. And this is his recommendation in the Dimbleby lecture. You encourage the private sector without too much interference to create as much wealth as possible, but use the wealth so created both to give a return for enterprise and to spread the benefits in a way that avoids the disfigurement of poverty, gives a full priority to public education and health services and encourages cooperation and not conflict in industry and throughout society. Which is quite sort of, proto-Blairite. Yeah, it is, yeah. Because you want the nation to be self-confident and outward-looking rather than insular, xenophobic and suspicious. Mm. Well, that would be that would be nice. <laughs> uh, so this leads... We'd both be pro that. I'd be for that. So he, that. And this leads to sort of the great centrist experiment in British politics prior to New Labour, which is the SDP. But like a genuinely centrist as in it is a third party. Mm-hmm. Actually, 60% of its members hadn't belonged to a political party before. Hmm. Um, and then of the rest, there were more Labour, quite a lot more Labour than Conservatives. The SDP Liberal Alliance, I'm not sure if you know this, I don't think I did, polled over 50% at the end of 1981, briefly making Jenkins the bookie's favourite for next Prime Minister. Uh, in the end, they get 25% in the 1983 election, but uh, thanks to First Past the Post, only got 23 MPs. I think the language is really important. Like, I think that's why I found interesting going back. Like, what is the language? Because there was quite a lot of talk during the Corbyn years of, like, this obsession that, that Labour had with using the word radical mm-hmm. and how people like, this kind of puts people off, like radical socialism. But, but Blair loved the word radical, used it all the time. Uh, 95, our project is to redefine radical left-of-centre politics for the new millennium. Mm. Note left of centre. He also talked about a radical centre in modern politics and said Labour was a party of the centre as well as the centre left. So centrism and radicalism go together. New Labour 
it isn't just like a paint job. That was so important. It was like newness. And, and they do, I noticed that in the New Democrats as well, like fetishized, you know, technology. Everything is new. We can't go back. Yes. So I'm going to give you a couple of speeches, one from Clinton, one from Blair. And look at the language. So Clinton, 92 election. The choice we offer is not conservative or liberal. In many ways, it's not even Republican or Democratic. It's different. It's new and it will work. <laughs> so it's a bit shopping channel. So, uh, a third way beyond the old approaches. And then after winning, he said, we have to build a vital centre, which is that, that phrase from Schlesinger. Mm. When we put aside partisanship, embrace the best ideas regardless of where they come from and work for principle compromise, we can move America, not left or right, but forward. Mm. Blair, meanwhile, uh, in a 95 speech to News Corp. Um, <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. Uh, my politics are simple, not complex. I believe you can have a country of ambition and aspiration with compassion and a sense of duty to others. The individual prospers best within a strong, decent, cohesive society. These are the real ends of the left of centre. The means of achieving them will, of course, vary from generation to generation and should be pragmatically, not ideologically driven. So it's that thing that he uses that which, you know, the, the improv comedy principle of like, yes, and. Mm -hmm. And he's constantly in the language. It's always like, not this and not that, but this. Yeah, yeah. But, but the, and it's the flip side of that is going, you can have this and that. Mm. So at the end, in his last conference speech in 2006, he goes, we free Britain at long last from the reactionary choice that dominated British politics for so long between individual prosperity and a caring society. We prove that economic efficiency and social justice are not opposites, but partners in progress. The USP of new labor is aspiration and compassion reconciled. So there, there is a language of centrism. That, I mean, that language, by the way, is almost exactly what the SPD say in Germany. They say individuality and solidarity should not be counterposed as opposites. I mean, that sweep, you, you, you know, you're finding the same body saying the same thing over and over. But don't you think that what happened here, the, the gap between this bit that we're talking about and the bit before mm. is, I suppose, the thing that we haven't mentioned, which is that the Soviet Union collapsed. And by virtue of that, the whole window yeah. shifts. The, right? the centre is to the right. Now. It's yeah, further exactly. to the right. Yeah. Yeah. And, so that, and that's essentially what we've seen there. It's a recalibration of the left. What does the left, I mean, I'm using it in inverted commas here, mean? Well, now it means something much more right-wing than before because the centre has now shifted. And then let me say why I think there's a problem with this. Because in 2008, that economic programme fell on its ass and nearly bottomed out the world. Year after year after year, these guys get rid of regulation on finance. You have 1994 Regal Neal Interstate Banking and Branching Efficiency Act in the US. You have the 1996 Economic Growth and Regulatory Paperwork Reduction Act. You have um, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, all of them just stripping out regulations on financial services. In the UK, yeah. you have the FSA created, streamlined regulations. And what does the financial sector do? It takes mortgage assets, turns them into securities, into investment assets, and it uses them to secure liquidity. They said that they ironed out risk from the system. In fact, you've got major financial institutions sitting with really risky upper tranches of these investment assets on their books and without the money to actually pay it, or without the money to deal with its failure. And that almost detonates the world economy. It leads to the austerity that we see later, to essentially yeah. what I think is the rise of populism and the decline of any kind of centrist thought in our own time. And that comes from a very interesting point to me. It means that it is, regardless of whether it happens to be the center opinion, it is wrong to not regulate the financial sector. It is, it is wrong is as point of objective and moral fact and political fact not to regulate it because it will run out of control and it always does. So to me, it, it acts as this kind of parable, this cautionary tale of what's so dangerous about the but project. It, but but is that integral to, to centrism? That's what I'm wondering. It's just like it seems that they could still have done what they wanted to do while keeping more regulation on financial services. It doesn't seem as if the project demanded this and this was the inevitable, therefore, failure of that project. It seems like a terrible, you know, it's not, it's not the same as the Iraq war, but, you know, you wouldn't argue that the Iraq war was an inevitable product of centrism. It happened to be the thing that kind of like sure, sure. tanked new labour, but it needn't have happened. Oh, so, plenty of European centrist parties didn't sign up to it. Right. right. Yeah. So does that kind of massive blunder on 
deregulation of the banks. I mean, is that a strike against that sort of new Labour era idea of centrism? Or is it just a policy failure rather than an idea failure? The reason I think it's so central is because it's so central to that historic story that goes all the way back to the French Revolution, but is certainly there for what John Stuart Mill was saying and what Keynes was saying, which is that you've got to interfere. The market does not run at equilibrium on its own. It is not true that the market regulates itself by virtue of the performance of the people in it. That was key to that endeavour. Then you get that shift away from Keynesianism. You see the collapse of communism moving the window. And you just get, and we had it, this is the part where it is useful to have lived through it, I think, because this is most of my early life, Mm. of just that relentless thing of the state is always inefficient. It's always cack-handed when it gets involved in in, in Mm. the market. You always want to get it out. Whenever, you know, there was never any talk of nationalising anything. The only ever talk they ever got was of privatising it because the assumption was so deeply set among everyone that this was the way. And I think that was the lesson that Blair took from from the political period in which he was in. That was the bit. That was where the centre had moved to. That's the bit that we accept. And the thing is, that wasn't true for reasons that exist regardless of whether people happen to believe it is true or not. It is not true by virtue of it being objectively true or false, not the relative popularity at any given moment. Hmm. And that means that the centre shift that way, I mean, a Labour government, you know, by Michael Foote or, or a Wilson or whatever that, that had never changed, would have cocked up all sorts of things, but it wouldn't have cocked that up. Yeah. And that, to me, is crucial. That is a new Labour error that old Labour would not have made. So I want to talk about, I suppose, the psychology of centrism and the psychology of these projects because one of book I found really useful is a book from 98 I think called Safety First by Paul Anderson and Knight Man. There is quotes in there of someone going like Manson would just do anything you know to get Labour back into power hmm. and someone else said no he says what you've got to understand about him is he's a very very right wing member of the Labour Party. Huh. He genuinely believes that and so that I think is the question that Blair the disagreements over Blair um, and what Blair believed uh, really I suppose nail the disagreements over centrism was he just a canny triangulator who just looked at where the most votes were or was he someone who really really believed that you know like some of these other thinkers that we've been talking about going back decades who really believed that this was the best settlement for the country that he, he really did think like that there should be prosperity. You have to respect individual aspiration, but also, you know, invest the proceeds in making sure that people have good education and good health care and don't sink into, you know, and reduce child poverty and, mm. and things like that. Which do you think, how calculating was he and how much was he a, uh, a real believer in this kind of new version of uh, a social democratic party? Does there have to be a choice there? Because it seems to me that the answer would be both. That I, I, I don't question for a moment the fact that he genuinely believed it on an ideological basis and that he also thought it was very helpful on an electoral basis and that those two beliefs played into each other. I always felt that he believed more in that project than, than Clinton did. Oh, interesting. I felt that with Clinton there was a lot more, and I could be, I could be being unfair here, but I felt that it was more an, what, an electoral calculation. What does it take for the Democrats to win? Mm-hmm than him having this real kind of commitment to this project. His speech, even if you compare those speeches, there's a kind of willingness, like not left, not right, but forward. Yeah, yeah. I don't, Blair wouldn't have kind of stooped to such a fucking dumb mm-hmm. version of centrism. He was, look, incredibly smart, incredibly eloquent. And I don't doubt for a minute that, that he believed in all of this stuff. That project always seems to have gone together. And what's funny is no matter how much you look up to try and read about it, the electoral calculation is never very far away. Right. And I think that speaks to something fascinating here, which is that there is something innately reassuring about the idea of um, finding the midpoint between two binary extremes. Yeah. I think we're very susceptible to this. So, it, you know, people will say things like, um, oh, if they're both angry at you, you must be doing something right. OK, for instance. Yeah. Well, what concerns me about that is this kind of vulnerability we have to binary opposition. OK. And I don't know where it comes from, but we, we are obsessed with the number two. 
Okay, and it, I think it's honestly, I think it's as simple as the fact that it's just our bodies. We have two hands, two feet, two nostrils, two eyes. And so we just think in terms of binary opposition. But, but yeah. why should, and that's the classic, you know, the BBC or whatever. Well, why was, it, why was the French seating plan so enduringly popular? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. And why is it left and right like our hands? Do you know what right. I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. There's something yeah. very primal about that idea. Right, but then, okay, so here's my thing. Why... A, I don't accept that there's always two sides to something, you know, that are equal to value. I think sometimes one side is correct. That is, I think that's simply the case. Secondly, I often don't think that there are only two positions on an issue. And in fact, there are often three or four or five. Mm-hmm. Then I started thinking, does centrism mean something if there's more than two positions? Because visually in your head, mm. you always imagine two points and a thing in the middle. Well, what if there's like five points now? Can we do that? Can we even calculate what that entails? And it seems to me that, that we can't, that the whole notion of it is kind of imbued with this idea of, oh, it's better to be in the middle of two extremes. And that's why it's such a powerful electoral mechanism, because people like the sound of that. And that's also why I think it's such a weak intellectual mechanism, because it doesn't actually reflect the complexity of thought that goes into political debate. Well, I, I wonder whether also that, that there is a, a hubris I- inherent in it, almost that like, the, yeah, these crazies on either side of me... <laughs> God knows what they're thinking, but I've, I've worked out a sensible, pragmatic, <laughs> evidence-based solution. And, and of course, we love, I, you, everybody loves the idea of, not everybody, but you know, like most people I think love the idea of that. And it's just like if somebody says, do you think policy should be based on uh, evidence and reason or dogma? <laughs> like the Marxists would, would say dogma, but then they'd probably go, but it's scientific dogma, so it's, it's the same as evidence. <laughs> You know what I mean? But it, it, it's sort of like, it's very hard to argue. Weirdly, it's quite hard to argue against the sort of the basics, the basic message of centrism, which is why I suppose people, you know, I am drawn instinctively towards that sort of language sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, in terms of sort of settling disputes, trying to bring people together. Because I think it's what people do a lot of time in their lives, right? You've got two members of your family arguing, could be your parents, could be your kids or whatever. And you're going, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to listen to you and we're going to work out a compromise. Yeah. You, you yeah. have the iPad for a bit now and she yeah, can and have the I'll iPad later. Chop it in half later on. <laughs> right? Do you know, like that's how people think. So, so it's, it's very alluring. And there's a great uh, quote in the Blair and Brown documentary from William Hague and he says some leaders see themselves as a personal bridge that can connect things that can't normally be connected and I thought god that's that's so good because he doesn't Hague leaves us value neutral says that's actually a great skill for a leader you mm-hmm. know he's not knocking it but implicit in that is that kind of arrogance that can come with that yeah you know and sometimes Blair did present it as if nobody else had thought about this stuff before, yeah, and he was just going, well people, there's only prosper- you know there's people who want prosperity and there's people who want social justice, but I can bring them together. I can bridge the gap between the labor party and traditional conservative moderate conservative voters. Mm-hmm. His whole project was like, I can bring together these kind of warring clans. And I should say, I mean, after slacking off centrism for nearly an hour now, (laughs) I am very sorry to be living in a period where someone with that sensibility, even if I don't necessarily like all the policies, isn't in charge. Because I got used to growing up with a government that was, the idea of government was you try to bring people together. Okay, I don't think that's there for Thatcher, but I do think it's there before Thatcher, you know, after the Second World War. And you have it there that centrism implicit in it is the idea that we find consensus that we can compromise, that we dig not just into the intellectual differences, but also maybe those underlying, we do some archaeology into the underlying emotional personality distinctions between voters that makes them sort of feel different ways, perhaps about order or about plurality of, you know, diversity. All of that's there. It's fundamentally a project to bring people together. And I miss that profoundly now because no matter how much I I disagree with it, I have now lived under several governments, several administrations where it is specifically on trying to pitch people apart, you know, on various culture wars or anything else. It's about divide, divide, divide. And that feels poisonous, whereas at least the notion of trying to bring people together feels very reassuring. Well, I want to end by talking about, I suppose, centrism now. Biden is sort of an arch-centrist in temperament but his whole kind of life in politics depended on there being these sorts of moderate republicans mm. and now mm. we've just seen like the republican party go so far off to the right 
the where is the center? Like if you try and now mark out the center between the left and wherever the Republicans are, Jesus Christ. like crazy town, then the center <laughs> is going to be quite right wing. And I think he's a little bit kind of caught with this idea of like that the sort of the centrist is sort of worked electorally. But he's sort of caught in, in, in government because it doesn't seem like you do have any kind of appetite for consensus. I think that probably there is still quite a lot of appetite for consensus among voters. But even then, a lot of Republican voters are kind of like, they'll just sign up for whatever. They'll just they'll keep traveling to the right until mm-hmm. until somebody tells them to well, stop, it's not, it's not until they're wearing right, uniforms. Well, they're, they're breaking that speech that you were alluding to first time, which is, you know, but the people in, in the centre-left, centre-right have to support the democratic system, the liberal democratic yes. system. I mean, they're off the, they're off the reservation yeah. on that stuff. You can't find, I mean, the only way to find a centre on that stuff is to give up on the concept of liberal democracy. You know, I think that's a real sort of challenge for, for centrism now. And I also feel like that maybe when people talk about it, one thing I've noticed is centrism is always about the future. It's not actually, at least the way in which people frame it, and you could say, oh, it preserves the status quo. But in the way that the radical centrists always talk, it's always about the new. It's a new settlement. It's radical. It's something else. Do you think that centrist, and I don't even know who you would identify as such, you know, in in politics at the moment, are they stuck in new labour? Because if centrism isn't new and hasn't found new ways of responding to challenges. And they love technology as well. So it's just always banging on about, <laughs> you know, phones. <laughs> you believe what the phones could do. Like apps. Have you heard of apps? Apps. Apps. They've got an app for everything these days. Is that kind of centrism's problem? One of centrism's problems at the moment is that they that, that it doesn't have something that feels, you know, the New Labour and the New Democrats felt very different to the post-war Keynesians consensus but what is there a new version of centrism that doesn't just seem like the 90s again you're certainly not getting it from political leaders in the uk i mean if you look at you know starmer is described as a centrist but his pitch is essentially to you know blue collar workers in former in sort of post-industrial sort of towns and it is essentially about security patriotism it's not really the great sort of technological change you you also find funnily enough that the the two main parties in the uk at least have become so used to stealing each other's clothes so that you know labor don't really want to talk about nationalizing stuff whereas the tories are actually relatively weirdly comfortable talking about nationalizing stuff labor does want to talk about security you know so you you get that strange process where the centralization happens intra-party rather than within it i mean at the moment though in terms of great thinkers for that stuff I don't see where many of them are. And I think the reason for that is because you've seen a fundamental shift in politics towards the politics of who you are, not what you want. And you see that on the left with identity politics. You see it on the right with identity politics around the concept of the nation. And in there, that there is no compromise position in that kind of debate. So most of the work is just trying to get out from that debate, let alone trying to come up with a coherent position for it. was intrigued by this thing in the John Avlon book which is so kind of fucking rah-rah centrism but he does say it suggests that it's kind of great might be better at winning elections than governing and he looks at the weaknesses and says a loss of momentum when in office and fragility of legacy which I think both of those you can say about New Labour right interesting Mm. and I wondered whether ideologies can weather failure right so Euroscepticism failed for a very long time people kept the faith Marxism you know, in in the West, Mm. always failing. But people still believe. Does centrism collapse if it's not working? Isn't the whole promise of centrism is like, one, it will win elections, two, pragmatic evidence-based policies will work. And so is that another kind of huge vulnerability in centrism? If it's not working, it's dead. I mean, I think it'll come back to work. But, well, I I say this, I don't even know what it is. If it is finding, you know, a compromise position between two extremes, you're always going to find people that are doing that for the reason that you sort of say that, you know, if you see an argument between two friends, you will find yourself talking in this way, even if you don't mean to. It's just such a natural instinct. And, you know, eventually people do go back to a more sort of evidence-based empirical assessment of politics rather than an identity one, and that will happen. 
whether we decide to call it centrism, to me, I think it's quite an open topic because I feel like I've after, you know what? It struck me. I had to pace around my living room thinking, can I describe this thing? And this is after reading, you know, I read a bunch of books and, and, and I just thought, well, if that's the case with anything meaningful about it that I can't ascribe to some other sort of system of thought, does it really deserve to be given this ism? I just, I just think that the more you try, it's like trying to nail sort of jelly to a wall and all that is interesting about it can be associated to just liberalism, to a rejection of tribalism, a seeking of moderation and consensus and to independent thought when it comes to political ideas. And all that's not interesting about it is just the sort of detritus and faff of party politics of like, well, we need to move over here now. Well, what, but you, you've been much more generous. In fact, well, I'm sort of curious as to, is there a bit of you that might even now call yourself a centrist or you want to go that far? No, but I, I maybe felt a bit fonder towards, I find it interesting because it doesn't have, precisely because it's not a fixed ideology, it doesn't have a set hmm. text. And therefore, it is sort of pieced together. And there's always a new version of it. So almost every centrist can have their own version of it. And so, so it's either inert and we just then no one knows what to do, or it can be really quite dynamic. A lot of the time, you're like, what categorizes this? Can I say I am or, or I'm not? Because it can't just be an instinct towards compromise and evidence. So centrism is an instinct, which I think I, 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 I do often have just as a human being mm -hmm. like that's something that's there's no ideology there so i do think there is an ideology in centrism but i do think there's a there's a there's an instinct of centrism and those are actually two different things so i think i can lean centrist in certain ways but then actually if you look at the policies i believe in i mean they're all fairly left-wing <laughs> so it's like my my sort of policy agenda such as i have one well, do you write them down sometimes? is not <laughs> i do <laughs> and just read them out to the guinea pigs <laughs> Not left, not right, but forward. Um, no, so I still consider myself on the left, but I have a certain sort of empathy with, I suppose, that, that constant instinct of like, is there a better way? And the idea that you have to invent, you have to work that better way out for yourself. So it's not like something like Marxism, where you sort of, you've got a source and you go, okay, well, here are the kind of, this is what Karl Marx said, and this is kind of what this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, socialist thinker said. I like the fact that it's very sort of vagueness and the fact that we, you know, this is a very exciting episode to, to research because there wasn't a set narrative. Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, so I guess there's Mill and there's Trotsky and mm. Celestia. You know, we're piecing it together. And I suppose that's what attracts me to it as an ongoing, fluid project, even if I am often, when you confront me with an actual centrist politician, like, I don't, I don't actually agree with them, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that I am always going to be to the left of them. But I don't think that it's a kind of shameful enterprise. I think that's it. It's not a shameful aspiration. I don't, I don't buy the idea that it's simply triangulation and it's simply absence and it's, you know... And they don't, and the people, and they don't believe in anything. Mm -hmm. I think there are. It, it's totally valid to believe in, you know, to look at the problems in society, and to think, well, maybe if we respected this, but also that, and we combine this tactic with that tactic, and we cut through the extremes, then we could reach a solution that mm -hmm. kind of worked and brought people together. Like that in itself, to me, the idea that that, that seeking that would be kind of would make you open to abuse seems quite bizarre to me even though one of course could could object to any number of kind of individual politicians do you see what i mean i do thank you very much for listening to another episode of our origin story uh you can send your emails to origin story at podmasters.co.uk go check the uh, show notes for the books that we've been reading and what we made of them and what we may or may not recommend we'll uh we'll see you next week Story is written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The music was by Jade Bailey, with audio production by me, Alex Reese. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and Origin Story is a Podmasters production.